Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Brazil's president-elect Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva will need to govern a more polarized, more conservative country than the one he ruled 20 years ago. What do we know so far about his plans for Brazil? He's shown in his whole life that he's very fast. He understands things very fast. He's very flexible, but it's not going to be easy. It's a different population. It's a different Congress. It's a different Lula. So if he chooses to govern as he was governing in the first term or in the second term, he's going to have problems, surely. The election is over, but Brazil remains tense. A country divided right down the middle after a 51-49 election result, presenting huge challenges for the president-elect, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Lula is widely regarded, even by many opponents, as the most talented politician of his generation. But he'll need every ounce of that skill to govern, with a hostile Congress, a business community that is skeptical of his plans, huge challenges in the Amazon and elsewhere, and many supporters of President Jair Bolsonaro mobilized on the streets and doubting the legitimacy of his victory. Today, we're joined by one of Brazil's best-connected political journalists, Malu Gaspar, columnist for O Global newspaper. Malu will help us look at Lula's plans for the transition, what we know anyway, what to expect from his government on economic and foreign policy, and also to explore what will happen to Bolsonaro and his supporters in the months and years ahead. Malu, welcome to the AQ Podcast. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Malu, before we look ahead, I do want to look back just a bit at this dramatic election. We avoided the worst fears of an institutional crisis, but it was close. And President Bolsonaro waited almost 48 hours after the vote to come out and say anything. In the end, he made a statement in which he did not concede, but he did say he would respect the Constitution and that he would allow for a transition to Lula take place. But looking back, Malu, based on your reporting, what do we know about what happened during that 48-hour period? And how close do you think Brazil came to some kind of institutional crisis? I don't think the big risk, the biggest risk took place in these 48 hours because the sequence of facts that we had before was so much concerning that when we got to the results, most of the risk was already taken care. Let's remember that Bolsonaro made a lot of claims that the electoral system was not reliable. I think that these were the most risky facts. When the results take place, people on Congress on the electoral justice, they were already very prepared for the worst. So what I'm hearing from you, Malu, is that even though Bolsonaro spent months trying to sow doubts about the voting system, by the time we got to election day, Brazilian institutions and civil society had understood the threat and closed off any real possibility for him to question or overturn the election result. And that rings true. I mean, in the months before the election, we saw leading public figures, uh, business executives, leaders in Congress, members of the military, make it clear to Bolsonaro in private and in public 
that they were not going to go along with any kind of authoritarian adventure. So the president of the chamber, he was already prepared to make a statement right away after the results. Also, the electoral court watched the whole count of votes altogether. Lots of ministers, the president of the Senate, everybody was waiting there for the results to be announced so that they could legitimate the results right after they were proclaimed. And they had lots of conversation on the background that they should be doing this right away so that Bolsonaro wouldn't have the chance to try to disrupt anything. So, and Bolsonaro was warned about it. And also, it's a very important thing to take into consideration that Bolsonaro was very sure that he would win. After the results were proclaimed, I was talking to politicians from lots of parties related to Bolsonaro, very close allies, and they were really shocked. They weren't expecting this victory of Lula. So they really thought they would win. It wasn't just sort of victorious rhetoric designed to inspire confidence. In your reporting, they really believed, including the president, that they were going to pull this off. The president was the most sure, the most uh, confident person of all. It was very weird because we were seeing on the polls that Lula was a favorite. But, you know, they don't believe in polls. And also polls in Brazil, they were wrong in the first round. So it was difficult to be sure of what would be. And Bolsonaro has this kind of, he doesn't think scientifically. He's not a statistical person. So he would go to places in rallies and everything. He would see lots of people in the streets. So what did he think? I'm a winner. Because look at all these people, as if it was this way that you measure the electoral preference. But he was very sure of it. So he was really, really disappointed. From what I heard, he was really pissed off. He really wanted to make some kind of claim to do some kind of revolution. But he was alone, pretty alone. And he wanted to do something, but in a very unorganized way. He didn't prepare a coup because he was really sure that he would win. So that period then of silence that followed was just, you think that was just shock and the president not knowing what to do next? It's what I've heard, yes. For example, I've talked to a very close ally of him that is not on the government. It's a person from Rio de Janeiro that knows him for 30 years and is always exchanging fake news in WhatsApp with the president. The next morning I called and I said, what's going on? Why is he not saying anything? What's going to happen? No, he's waiting for the proof of fraud. What is he waiting right now? In the, like it's 12 hours from the election. There's no proof of fraud. No, no, I'm going to show you the reports. So he was sending me WhatsApp fake news, videos. I think he was uh, closing his, in this kind of metaverse, or what, how do you say, in this parallel world that he lives in. He lives in the WhatsApp. So I think he was kind of in a grief mixed with a lot of furious feeling. I think he would like to have this, something that would really break, disrupt the institutions available. But he didn't have from a lot of time 
All right, Malu, let's look ahead now and talk about Lula. What do you think he is thinking about most right now? What are the main things that you hear from your sources that are on his mind as he prepares to take office? Well, he's very concerned about how to organize the budget to include some of the more basic uh, promises he did in the campaign that were to pay the benefits for to the poor. And he also has to give some extra money for children that are in the school. And we don't have space in the budget for that. So everybody knew that the Congress would have to give some kind of authorization, some kind of license for the new government to spend above the fiscal ceiling. Which, just to be clear, that is a constitutionally mandated fiscal cap that has been in place since the Temer administration that limits how much a government can spend. And it's widely acknowledged that Lula will have to seek some kind of waiver on that just as Bolsonaro did in practice during his final year. But it's going to be, arguably, it's going to be even tougher for Lula because he's going to be seeking more money. More money, yes, that's right. Your description is perfect. And this is the most important problem he has to solve before even taking his diploma. The second most important thing related to that is that he has to choose a minister for the economy. This is not simple because you have this discussion inside the campaign, inside the the group of the president, about what to do. To have a group that wants to be more fiscal responsible, spend less, and you have the other part that are more for spending to amplify the role of the state in the economy. And this is still taking place inside the very close circle of Lula's ally. And he's not really giving any hints of what he wants to do. He spent all the campaign saying that we should trust him because he is fiscal responsible, because he has a very consistent legacy in his first government. But we have to remember that after Lula came Dilma and it was an economical disaster. So if everybody's watching It's very closely. Well, and there's so much at stake. And, you know, it strikes me that, or it seems to me that with Lula right now, you can see whatever you want to see, which is maybe by design because Lula has referred to himself over the years as a walking metamorphosis, citing the old Brazilian rock song. But it's true. He was fiscally moderate during his first government. But those were different circumstances with a commodities boom that was being driven by China. It's also true that he said during this campaign that he knew that this would not be a PT government, a workers' party government, that he would need to share power. But what I'm seeing in your reporting, Malu, and also elsewhere in the Brazilian press is that, okay, during the campaign, he talked about sharing power. But now when it comes down to the specific decisions that would actually mean trusting people outside the BT, he's facing some resistance from inside the party. And also, Brian, he's not the same guy either. He's 77 year old. He's been uh, in the prison in his first government, his first terms. He was much more pragmatic. Now, I don't see this very clearly because he has his gratefulness to some people that were together with him when he was in the prison, like, for example, 
Glaze Hoffman, Aloysio Mercadante, lots of people that are not very well evaluated by the market, by the other politicians. I've heard that the people that Lula is sending to talk about planning, budgets, and uh, laws, and all this kind of thing, they are not the best to negotiate. And that's why he put Geraldo Alckmin. Milo, just a note for our non-Brazil specialists. Um, of course, you're referring to the vice president-elect, Geraldo Alckmin, uh, former governor of Sao Paulo, an old-school center-right politician who is leading the transition from the Bolsonaro to the Lula government. He is the only one that can talk to all the ideological spectrum without creating problems. So it's not a a easy task, but Lula himself is a very charming man. He's a very experienced politician. So I think when he starts talking, then we can see how he's going to work. We'll be back after a quick break with more on how Brazil has changed in the 20 years since Lula left office and what we can expect from the president-elect on the international stage. The America's Quarterly Podcast is sponsored by The Boeing Company, which this year celebrates 90 years of operations in Brazil. During that time, Boeing has witnessed firsthand the country's ability to reimagine aviation. And that'll be key in years to come, as Brazil plays an important role helping the aviation sector around the world to achieve decarbonization. One question that you've repeatedly touched on, Malu, is whether Lula really understands how much Brazil has changed compared to 20 years ago, politically, economically, socially. And all of us watched his victory speech on the night of the election. And he started his speech by thanking God. And then he ended his speech by quoting Pope Francis and Jesus Christ. And look, Lula has spoken about religion over the years. It's not totally new, but for me, as someone who's followed and listened to Lula for a very long time, it seemed like a different speech from the ones that he gave when he was president the first time. Do you think that's a sign that he understands this new moment? Or do you think that because of his age and his experience that it's going to be hard for him to really appreciate the degree to which this is a polarized, much more conservative Brazil with a big part of the Congress against him? I think I have some doubts, Brian, because I see that he understands Brazil has gone through a very important change, but I don't think he understood the whole complexion and the size of it. Why do I say so? Mainly because of the way that he dealt with the evangelical electorate. There was this all this whole discussion in the campaign if he should do some kind of statement for this specific part of the electorate that the, is more or less estimated in 30% of the electorate that really was the pillar of Bolsonaro's political power. And these guys are not exactly a lot of uh, crazy fanatical religious. They're not this kind of people. They are people that are everywhere in the streets and they are conservative, but they also have some kinds of different uh, beliefs. They are very concerned of entrepreneurship. 
they are very concerned on this liberty that Bolsonaro uses in a kind of wrong way, but appeals to them because they feel the state shouldn't bother them. They want the liberty to be conservative. They want the liberty not to be affected by the political correct uh, speech and this kind of thing that I don't think that Lula understood correctly. So I think he's going to have a lot of work understanding that it's not only a religious change that Brazil has gone through. Brazil has gone through a very important social uh, change. You have a very large portion of Brazilian population that is not attended by uh, public services that rely on their own selves, then that's why they want entrepreneurship, they want liberty. They are not waiting for health, public health system, for example. They're taking care of their lives. So when Lula comes and say that he's going to put the state spending and do some kind of thing, people think of what? Corruption. So it's complicated. You can't talk like this, like God has put me here to do things. Well, it's not that way anymore. Brazil has changed in this very profound way. And I'm not sure he has understood that. To just cite two data points here. The first one is you mentioned the evangelical community, which has gone from being less than 10% of the population in the 1980s to maybe 30%, maybe 35% today. We don't know because there hasn't been a census in Brazil since 2010 because of the pandemic. And I saw an estimate last week from someone at the Brazilian Statistics Institute saying that evangelical Christians could actually be a majority as early as the year 2033. That tells you that this is a rapid transformation that is sweeping through Brazilian society right now. And that's a group that, at least in polls, we didn't get exit polling in this election, but in the polls prior to the election, evangelicals were supporting Bolsonaro by a two-to-one margin. That is a group that Lula will need to at least partly seduce in order to maintain some kind of governability. And then the second part, also based on some of the polling we had prior to the election, was that Lula really was only winning in the demographic of Brazilians who make less than two minimum salaries per month, which is a large percentage of Brazilians. But in every economic demographic that makes more than that, Bolsonaro was ahead, in part, I think, because of this appeals that he's constantly making towards small business owners and entrepreneurs and so on. So it is a very different Brazil from the one 20 years ago, for sure. Yes, that's right. And I think Lula, he's shown in his whole life that he's very fast. He understands things very fast. He's very flexible. I think he can do that, but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be simple. And he's going to have a very, I won't say hostile Congress, not at all, but much more independent Congress. The deputies and parties don't need the government uh, so much that as they needed before when Lula was the president for the first time, because we have uh, two things that are very important now, very important factors. One is the state funding for parties that was established after car wash operations so that they should, the parties shouldn't ask for money 
And also they have this secret budget. I don't know how, how to translate this to your public, but it's a part of the budget given to the deputies to send to their cities, to their communities. They don't need to ask for the federal government for that. So they have a lot of money to survive. They don't need the federal government, the executive power for that. So they're more at large to negotiate. Lula doesn't have so much power to negotiate. So this is going to be difficult too. It's a different population, it's a different Congress, it's a different Lula. So if he chooses to govern as he was governing in the first term or in the second term, he's going to have problems, surely. And also there is the corruption. In this whole style environment, the appeal for corruption is very big. And I have said that I believe Lula will be held to a higher ethical standard than Bolsonaro was because of his history and that of the PT. So the eyes will be on him for sure. And not only because that, let me just compliment you. There was a lot of corruption in Bolsonaro's government, but Bolsonaro was distracting us with all the turmoil in the institutions, defying the democracy. People were very busy trying to understand all that craziness so that the corruption was a side subject. Now, it's going to be different necessarily because Lula doesn't defy the democracy. So we're going to have more time to watch his government closely. <laughs> Final question for you, Malu, just about Brazil's role in the world. Lula declared during his speech that Brazil is back. There's certainly an expectation here in the United States, as well as in Europe, as well as in the rest of Latin America, that Brazil will at least try to take a leadership role on issues like the Amazon, but also potentially returning to the South-South diplomacy that was such a trademark of Lula's first term. What do you expect from this government in terms of what it will try to do with Brazil's role in the world? Well, I see that Lula has big ambitions, big ambitions on that. If there is something that he really wants to leave as a legacy when he finishes his government is this new role of Brazil, uh, reinserting Brazil in geopolitical order and all this kind of thing. And also him. He wants to leave this government as a global historical figure. So that's why he's going to the COP27 and I've heard from a lot of his allies that he's gonna, this is going to be his priority. After solving these economy problems, he's going to take care of being a global leader, talking about climate change issues and other important issues. And he's going to leave the government for Geraldo Alckmin to coordinate. So we can expect to see Lula in a lot of global forums, negotiations, he's going to try to be this protagonist, this global protagonist, and I think he's going to make a very big effort on that. Malu, on that note, thank you so much for joining us here on the AQ Podcast. Okay, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.